A few years ago, I was uh, ready to purchase a new running watch. When you, when you run, a lot of runners like to kind of keep track of how far they've gone, how fast they've gone, how high they've gone, you know, things like that. And so I was, you know, in the market. I was kind of shopping. And I found a few options, you know, that I was interested in, but I wanted to see if I could find any reviews on, you know, the, the watch that I was kind of settling in on, zeroing in on. And so I started to look up, you know, various reviews. You know, first you start with Amazon and you can kind of see, you know, in the, the reviews underneath, you know, different people making their comments and stuff like that. And, and you know, some of the reviews, it was like you just wanted to throw them out real quickly, you know, because the review would kind of start something like this. Like, I just got my watch in the mail yesterday and I love it. And, you know, for somebody who's looking for, like, how does it work when you go out on the trails? How far have you gone? How many months have you had it? Is it going to last? Is it, can it endure bad conditions? You know, things like that. Those were, just weren't the reviews that I was looking for. Finally, I found, you know, somebody who had a full detailed, you know, like, I have lived with this thing for a long time. I've gone on all these adventures. Here's what it can do. All of that. And it felt like, okay, good. Now I have a word showing me this you know, this is the watch that you want to buy. The text that's in front of us today is kind of like that. You have a man who is going to declare to us who God is, not out of theory, not out of just simple belief, but a man who has experienced the living God. David, in this song, is going to rejoice over the Lord. And in so doing, he is going to declare beautiful truths that I think it is possible for every single Christian on earth to declare if we walk with and enjoy the Lord. These are statements that only a person who has been in step with the Lord is able to sing. So what I'm going to try to do for you today as we go through this passage, I mean, it's 51 verses, it's very long, so you could kind of get stuck in a lot of detail in it, but what I'm going to try to show you are the five movements of this song. And as we look at the five movements of this song, I'm going to try to show you how each movement, in a sense, there's like one declaration that David is going to say. He's going to say, God is my rock. He's going to say, God is my rescuer. He's going to say, God's way is best. He's going to say, God has equipped and enabled me. And he's going to say that God lives. And as we look at each one of these sections, my hope and prayer is that you and I would build our lives in such a way so that we could declare these beautiful things as well someday. So that we could sort of speak and say, this is what God has been for me. You know, I, I don't just think God lives. I've watched how God lives. I don't just think that God can equip and enable and prepare a person. I've watched him do it at every single stage and season of my life. I don't just think that God is a rock and a fortress and a deliverer. I've actually lived it, and here's how. So that's kind of what we're going to look at today together. So let's start out in verse 1 through 4 and see the beginning of David's song. It says, and David, verse 1, spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies, and then a special shout out for, and from the hand of Saul. He said, verse 2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. 
my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior. You save me from violence. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. One of the first things that I'm sure you noticed is how personal David is with the Lord. He doesn't say God is a rock, a fortress, a deliverer. He says God is my rock. God is my fortress. God is my deliverer. He has done this for me. I have experienced the Lord in this way. You probably also notice that David used a lot of different images to describe the Lord. He calls him a rock, a fortress, a deliverer, a horn of salvation, a shield, a refuge. So if I could just sort of zero in on one of them, the the one that is the most repeated throughout this entire psalm, and talk about God as David's rock and God is our rock for a moment. I think that would be beautiful. I mean, sometimes we say that, you know, God is my rock, you know, and people shout and cheer. And, but then if you kind of think about it later, like, well, what does that mean? That, that God is my rock. What, what does that mean? Well, think about it, first of all, in David's experience. David had large portions of his life where Saul, his father-in-law, persecuted him, and he had to run into the wilderness. And when he ran into the wilderness, one of the places that he would go to was the region of En Gedi that was filled with hundreds, if not thousands, of caves. And David would go into these caves, into these rocks, and find a refuge or a place of safety. So in a sense, one of the things that David seems to be announcing about God as his rock is that God has been a hiding place for him against the enemies that have come against him in life. God has been a place of refuge, a place where he can find protection and safety. He said it this way in Psalm 32, verse 7. He said, you, God, are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. But that idea that God is a hiding place. Not only would David have thought of God as a rock in the sense of being a hiding place, but also... Think about it for a moment. When, when you and I, when we think here in Northern California on the Central Coast, when we think about a wilderness area, we think about a place that has lots of trees, maybe some redwoods, maybe forests to kind of go through, and there's shade and all of that. But when David would have thought of a wilderness area, he would have thought of desolation. He would have thought of desert, a very dry and arid climate, and he would have thought of the hot, beating sun coming down upon the sojourner in the midst of the wilderness. Now, if you were passing through wilderness like that in the middle of a hot day where the sun is beating down upon you, and you saw a large boulder out in the middle of this desert area, what would you do? You would go and you would find yourself in the shade of that rock. So for David as well, not only is God a source of refuge, a place to hide from enemies, but a place of shade in the midst of life's difficulties, the pains of life coming upon him. David found God is one that he could turn to for shade and rest in life. Like God said to the people of Israel in Isaiah 43 verse 2, he said, when you walk through the fire, 
you will not be burned and the flame shall not consume you because of their relationship with God, that God is with them, that God is a rock for them. But another way that David would have thought of, a, of God as a rock is he would have thought of God as an immovable presence in his life. You see, for you and me, when we think about rocks, sure, they might be big, they might be heavy, but if we need to move them, we have dynamite, we have powerful drills, we can just blow them up, we can move them, we can eliminate them. But in that culture and society, the, the, the idea of a rock was, was that of being an immovable object. It just was. It existed. And it wasn't going to go anywhere. And David thought of God in this way. He thought, God is always there for me. God is always present in my life. God is always able to be depended upon. He is always and ever present. He is trustworthy. Now, this is beautiful, to be able to think of God in this way. That God is my refuge when the enemy comes against me. He's the place that I go to hide, to find safety. He's my shade when life gets difficult and hard and painful. And he's the one who is always present in my life at every single moment of my life. Now, this is beautiful to confess and to think about God, but this is more beautiful when someone confesses it and thinks it because they've lived it and they've experienced it. Amen? And David here is just testifying. He's saying, this is who God has been. He's been a rock for me. Look, many of you here in this room, many of us that are gathered together here today, we know of God in this way. There are plenty of people here today that this would be mere theory for because they're just getting started in their walk with the Lord. Maybe God can be a rock for me. Maybe he can be a hiding place for me. Maybe he can be shade for me. Maybe he will always be there for me. But if he already has been that for you, then you must declare it to the next generation. You must share and say, God has been a rock for me. So that's number one. The person who's walked with the Lord is able to say, God is my rock. God has been my rock. Anybody able to say that here today? God has been my rock. All right, now, number two, the song goes on. And David is going to recount a time where the heat was really on in his life. Some kind of enemy was pressing against him, and he's going to recount how God rescued him, how God saved him, how God delivered him. So let's read of it together starting out in verse 5. He says, For the waves of death encompassed me. The torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. Now, David was a poet. He's very dramatic. He's not talking about an actual time where he was down in hell and the, down at the bottom of the ocean and the snares of death were around him. But he just felt that way in life. You kind, of, you kind of picture David as the kind of guy that like after a 70-hour week at work or something with a boss breathing down his neck, he would go home and you know his wife would say, how was work today? And he'd say, the pains of death were swallowing. I mean, he's just a dramatic kind of guy. So he's recounting that in some, you know, so, some episode of his life. He says, in my distress, verse 7, I called upon the Lord. To my God I called. And, and of course, God doesn't mind this one bit. He says, from his temple, this being heaven, God heard my voice and my cry came to his ear. Then, what, what happened? What happened when you prayed, David? He says, then the earth reeled and rocked. 
the foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made darkness around him, his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water. Out of the brightness before him, coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven, and the Most High uttered his voice. And he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning, and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. He sent from on high, verse 17, he took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Now here, like I said, David dramatically, poetically, beautifully describes God's rescue. Now we don't know exactly what episode David is talking about in his life, but he just gives this account of God. He says, I prayed and God came in full fury for me and against my enemies. You know, smoke was billowing from his nostrils. Lightning was shooting forth from his fingertips. He was powerful and strong on my behalf. He rescued me. I was drowning, but he parted the waters and took me out of the depths of the sea. He rescued me. And don't you love that last line there in verse 20? He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Now, you may have forgotten because it's been so long as we've been going through the life of David, but David was a man who was very familiar with a multitude of enemies in his life. When we first read of David in 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, his whole situation is couched in brokenness in his family. The prophet Samuel comes to his home and speaks to his father Jesse and says, send all of your sons to this feast, this special sacrifice to the Lord. Jesse collects all of his sons except for David, his eighth son. He doesn't even see David as worthy of coming to the sacrifice, but instead treats David like he would treat a servant or a slave and leaves him out in the wilderness to tend the sheep. So his whole existence, his whole beginning sort of speaks to some kind of animosity even there within his own family. Then after being anointed by the Lord, he goes out and he hears Goliath taunting the people of Israel. He's in conflict with Goliath and God is faithful to him. Almost immediately, he's brought into Saul's courts. He begins to serve as one of Saul's military leaders and Saul sends him out sometimes even with uh, less than pure motives to go and fight against the Philistines. And he defeats the Philistines, and eventually Saul becomes David's enemy. He takes spears and he throws them at 
David, trying to take out David's life. You might even remember that when David was on the run from Saul, God not only saved David from Saul, but God saved David from himself. Do you remember the whole episode with Nabal, where Nabal betrayed David and David wanted to kill him, which would have disqualified David from being the future king in Israel. And God, through Nabal's wife, Abigail, interceded for David and he saved David from himself. Have you ever had the Lord save you from yourself? And then as the story unfolded, enemy after enemy, eventually Saul died, but in his place, Saul's son Ishbosheth arose, and then Ishbosheth's general arose, and God was faithful to David. God won victories for David over these enemies, over these foes. After they died, after they were replaced, even his own son Absalom arose. And then, as we saw a few weeks ago, there was the rebellion that was led by that man Sheba who took the 10 northern tribes of Israel. And over and over and over again against all of his enemies, God granted David the victory. He says, the Lord delighted in me. He brought me into this broad and beautiful place. He was able to say, Not only is God my rock, but God has been my rescuer. God has saved me from some real gnarly stuff, man. He has helped me. He's enabled me. He has stood with me when I thought no one else would stand with me. And he has seen me through trial after trial, affliction after affliction. Now, one of the greatest ways that the child of God today is able to say that God is my rescuer is by by looking back to the cross of Jesus Christ. That there was this great thing called sin that was dominating us, breathing down upon us, separating us from God. Our impurity, our guilt, our shame. And Jesus came, died on the cross, and made a way for us to be forgiven, cleansed, made righteous in the sight of God Our great foe and enemy was vanquished in the cross of Jesus Christ. But beyond that, the believer can also say, and there have been so many things in my life where the enemy, whether spiritual or in the physical realm, was trying to take me out, trying to destroy my life. But as I walked with the Lord, he was faithful. He delivered me. He stood with me. He strengthened me. It sometimes took years of conflict and waiting and praying and crying out before the Lord delivered me, but he did. And this is another great testimony that those who have experienced it need to proclaim to the believers in their lives. Because so many are going through the fire right now. So many are going through the difficulty right now, but for someone to pull up alongside of you and say, you know, the Lord, he was faithful to me. You know, you're you're going through a rough patch in your marriage. I want to tell you about something that was rougher than you've ever experienced and and what the Lord did for me, how he stood with me, how he was faithful to me. You're going through a difficulty in life, feeling alone, and that depression is coming upon you. I want to talk to you about a time where the Lord stood with, with me in the midst of that aloneness. Let me pray for you because the Lord, he is able. The Lord God, David would say, is my rescuer. Let's go on, though, to read the next thing that David would sing to the Lord, starting out in verse 21. He says, The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands, he rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord God and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules 
were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his sight. With the merciful, verse 26, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. With the purified, you deal purely. And with the crooked, you make yourself seem tortuous. Not to be confused with torturous, but tortuous, meaning winding or twisted. You, you save a humble people, verse 28, but your eyes are on the haughty to bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. For by you I can run against a troop, and by my God I can leap over a wall. This God, verse 31, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. Now in this next part of David's song and prayer, he just kind of celebrates a very specific aspect of who God is. But before he does it, he has this whole section. You may have noticed it. It probably caught some of your eye where he talked about his own life. He, he, in verse 21, referenced the cleanness of his own hands. In verse 22, he said, I've kept the ways of the Lord. In verse 23, he said, all of God's rules and statutes were before me. I kept them. Verse 24, I was blameless in keeping the law of the Lord. In verse 25, he said, the Lord has re rewarded me according to my righteousness. And as we read through all of that, I'm sure some of you in the back of your mind, as you read all of that about David, in the back of your mind, you're going like, Bathsheba. <laughs> you're just kind of thinking like, how can you say that you were all of these things, that your hands were clean, that you were blameless, that you never departed, and, and all of those things? Well, first of all, there might be a key in the last line of verse 25. He says, in his sight. So perhaps he is saying, look, this is how God has decided to regard me. He has decided to take my sin away from me. He's decided to see me as righteous. But there's another sense in which David is making this declaration. You see, in the Old Testament, there was the idea that a person had a general decision to make in life. Will I be the kind of person who in general takes the word of God, takes the statutes of God, the laws of God, and decides that they will set the course of my heart and life. Of course, I'm not going to always, in every single instance of life, obey the dictates of God's word, but in general, this will be the course, the flow, the direction of my life. Or will I be the person who sets his heart upon folly, sets his heart in general on disobedience to the Lord. The Proverbs are a good example of this kind of relationship with God and his word. Over and over in the Proverbs, there's a decision that's made. The wise man, the man who fears the Lord, the woman who fears the Lord, will choose this option to obey the Lord, and then the fool, the one who does not fear the Lord, will wander away from God, will wander away from the Lord. In fact, Proverbs chapter 9, the entirety of it, is a great picture of this decision. Because in Proverbs chapter 9, two women are standing in front of two separate houses. 
One woman is a picture of wisdom, and another woman is a picture of folly. And both women are crying out to every single person that passes by their homes and inviting them to come into their house. Wisdom saying, come, be with me, follow me, learn of me, and folly saying something similar. In fact, it says it this way in Proverbs 9, verse 4 and 6, the way of wisdom says, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. I think that what David is saying here in general is, that's the house that I went into. I decided that I wanted to submit myself to the Lord. I wanted to go into the house of wisdom so that this simple man could receive insight and direction and guidance from the Lord. And what David then announces is, and it has worked out beautifully. Over and over again, in the thing that he's saying, he says, the Lord has been merciful to me. He's, he's been pure to me. He's saved me. He's been rewarding to me. Verse 31, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield to all who take refuge in him. Here's the third thing I want you to see that David is announcing in this song. He is saying, number three, God's way is the best way. That's what he's declaring. He's not a young man theorizing about this, but an older man who is celebrating this. He's saying God's way is always the best way. God's standard of living is always the best standard of living. It's a a way in which he is urging us on to build our lives upon the rock, the foundation of God and his word. Now this is an easy one to illustrate in so many different ways. You can take lots of examples from our everyday lives. Let's take one from what we do with the majority of our lives. How how do we spend the majority of our lives? Here, Here at church, worshiping together, studying the Bible together? No, this is just part of our lives. The big thing that we do with our lives, the thing that we spend so much of our time on, is our work, our jobs. Our our weekly experience of going out and earning a living and doing what you know, the Lord has put in front of us. Now, there are wrong ways in which to approach our work. You know, there would be some who would say, I mean, this would be the house of folly, would say, here's what your work is. Your work is a necessary evil so that you can play. That's what your work is. You know, kind of a living for the weekend kind of experience. Or overwork yourself to death today so you can play tomorrow, you know, kind of thing. But that's not a scriptural idea of work. That would be building our house. That would be entering into the house of folly. There's also the idea that we would worship our work. You know, who are you? Well, I am what I do. My identity is wrapped up in what I do. There is also the idea that all work is a bad thing, like When God created Adam and Eve, they were just kicking it, just hanging out, and just eating grapes, you know, and all of that. And then the fall happened, and God said, hey, by the sweat of your brow, you're going to eat bread. And all of a sudden, Adam was like, what? I have to work? 
you know, kind of thing. And it's just the result of the fall. That'd be a wrong way to think about things because when God created the Garden of Eden, he created it in perfection and he gave Adam and Eve jobs to perform. No, instead, what we should do is look into the word of God and realize that God said, fill the earth and subdue it. You know, I I want you to work. I want you to organize. I want you to buy and sell. It's going to be a blessing if you make money and hire people and they're able to make money. I want you to do that kind of thing. I want you to bring goods that are helpful to the uh, human race into existence. And as you work, I want you to do it heartily, Colossians 3, 23, as for the Lord and not for men. And when this kind of attitude begins to permeate our heart, What are we doing? We're entering into the house of wisdom rather than the house of folly. And we're able to say God's way is the best way. You could also say this, perhaps as an example, in the way that we might raise families. You know, some of us have the opportunity to to be parents and, and to raise children. And there's a wrong way to go about that and a right way to go about that. You know, for one, we might make our children into little idols that we worship. You know, following them around. Oh, you know, I I don't want them to ever fall down. I don't want them to ever get hurt. I'm just, I'm, I'm here to serve you. You're the God that I'm worshiping. We might neglect our children, thinking that we don't need to teach them or train them or pour into their lives in any way, shape, or form. We might fear our children. Wanting their respect, their love, their esteem more than the the esteem, the respect of God himself. Or we might think that we own our children, that they are ours, which if you feel that way, you're in for real heartbreak when those children who are your children decide to go off and do whatever they want to do when they leave your home. No, it's for us to realize that we are stewards of these children. God has entrusted them into our care. We must instead see them like the psalmist in Psalm 127, verse 4, who said, they are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. That's what the children of one's youth are like. We are preparing them for flight. We are getting them ready, trusting the Lord that God wants to use their lives here on earth. Another good example of God's way being the best way would be an example I've said from time to time from this pulpit, but the idea of cohabitation versus covenantal marriage. You know, over and over again, studies demonstrate and show that people who shack up, live together, cohabitate before marriage have a lower success rate than those who wait, reserve themselves, and then get married together, make that covenant with one another before God and man. And it is the best way. And I remember when Christina and I got married, it was, you know, it was a trip because we were, I, was, I was super like rigid. We, we, were, we were super rigid just about like, you know, as we dated and stuff like that, you know, like I'd go drop her off at her apartment and I wouldn't go inside. Like if, she, if her room, roommates weren't there, I wouldn't go inside. If her roommates were in their bedrooms, I wouldn't go inside. You know, it was just like, I knew I was so attractive. It was going to be hard for her to... <laughs> You know, just I didn't want to stumble her, you know? And so it was just like, all right, you know, see you later, you know, kind of thing. Like, and it, it was such a trip to then get married, you know, right here on this platform, say our vows, and then it's like, well, here we are. Now we're just like, we went from not even going into each other's apartments to now we're like living together. 
We're in the same bedroom together. We're just like brushing our teeth at the same sink together. It was just, it was so wild, but, but also just so beautiful, so great, so rich. You see, God's way is the best way. Let's go on in David's song and see what he says in verse 32 and following. He says, for who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? This God is my strong refuge and has made my way blameless. He made my feet like the feet of a deer and set me secure on the heights. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. You have given me the shield of your salvation and your gentleness made me great. You gave me a wide place for my steps under me and my feet did not slip. I pursued my enemies and destroyed them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I consumed them. I thrust them through so that they did not rise. They fell under my feet for you, verse 40, equipped me with strength for the battle. You made those who rise against me sink under me. You made my enemies turn their backs to me, those who hated me, and I destroyed them. They looked, but there was none to save. They cried to the Lord, but he did not answer them. I beat them fine as the dust of the earth. I crushed them and stamped them down like the mire of the streets. In this portion of David's song, he recounts how God had given him all of these miraculous victories. That's really what it is. God took my feet and he made them like the feet of a deer. He transformed me. He enabled me to climb places and do things that I could not have done without God's equipping, without God's help. He says, he trained my hands for war. He enabled me to bend a bow of bronze. He gave me strength that was not mine previously. He gave me a wide place for my steps. He just gave me success in life. And what David seems to be recounting here is very simple. And this is a beautiful thing that someone that walks with the Lord is able to say simply this, God has empowered me. God has equipped me. God has enabled me. Time and time again, I didn't think that I could do it, but God gave me the strength. God gave me the help. God gave me the aid that I needed. You know, life is crazy. The second that you think that you've gotten it, the second that you think you've figured out how to do it, some new development unfolds in front of you. And it's like, okay, how do I do this? The second that you think, you figured out, okay, now I know how to parent. Your kid becomes a teenager. You know, the second that you, that you think you've figured out, you know, how to take care of your body, you turn 40. You know, as, as time just unfolds, we start to discover, man, this is not an easy experience. This is not something that's simple for us as we pass through stages of friendship or career or marriage or aging. As we go through all of these things, we need the strength and the help of God. David is able to say, God has empowered me. You know, one of the greatest gifts that God has given to us as his people is he's given us the gift of his Holy Spirit. When Jesus was about to depart from the earth, his disciples were worried. I mean, wouldn't you be worried as well if after three, year, three years of getting used to having Jesus around, he started talking about leaving? I mean, how convenient was it to have Jesus? You know, we're hungry. Jesus just breaks bread in his hands and he produces food for them. 
The Pharisees come around and they have these really difficult questions that they're bringing to Jesus. And, or the disciples, and the disciples just move out of the way and they just let Jesus answer the question. Demon-possessed people, like we saw a few weeks ago with Pastor Bill, they come out of the woodwork and the disciples are able to just lean back and Jesus will deal with them. He'll handle them. When the storms come, they cry out to Jesus. Over and over again, Jesus was faithful to them and helped them in life. And then Jesus all of a sudden starts saying, I'm going to leave. I'm going to depart. And they began to worry. But Jesus tried to calm their fears by saying to them in John 14, he said, when I leave, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. What Jesus was promising them there was that when he departed, the Holy Spirit of God would come to not only be with them, which he was at that time, convicting them, ministering to them, drawing them, but when Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit would come to live inside of them. He would empower them. He would equip them and enable them. Now he did say, I'll send to you another helper. But in the Greek language, they had words for another. One word that was used for another is a word that means another of a lesser kind and quality, and, and, and then another word that means another of the same kind and quality. And that's what the word that Jesus used here, another of the same kind and quality. So just as, the, as Jesus taught, the Spirit would teach. Just as Jesus would provide, the Spirit would help provide. Just as Jesus protected them and defended them and emboldened them, so the Spirit would also protect and defend and embolden them. The Holy Spirit so often is the one who will give us the empowering that we need so that we can say things like David. He trains my hands for war. I'm able to do things that I just normally couldn't do, but God by His Spirit has helped me. He's gifted me. He's strengthened me. He's called me. He's enabled me to do that which I previously could not do in and of myself. Now let's look at the end of this song to see the last thing that David's saying. He said, verse 44, you delivered me from strife with my people. You kept me as the head of the nations. People whom I had not known served me. Foreigners came cringing to me as soon as they heard me. They obeyed me. Foreigners lost heart and came trembling out of their fortresses. The Lord lives. And blessed be my rock, and exalted be my God, the rock of my salvation. The God who gave me vengeance and brought, me de- brought down peoples under me, who brought me out from my enemies, you exalted me above those who rose against me. You delivered me from men of violence. For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. Great salvation he brings to his king, and shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Here, David just simply says, God is worthy of praise. He's helped me, he's enabled me, he's strengthened me. God is worthy of praise. And the thing that I want to fixate on is the simple phrase there in verse 47. Look at it with me again. He says, the Lord lives, and blessed be my rock. The reason I'm pointing that out is because at the beginning of David's life, when he was just a teenager and his brothers were off 
at war for Israel, his three oldest brothers, and his father gave him cheese and bread to deliver to his oldest brothers and to bring some news from the battlefront. When David arrived there, you remember the scene. Goliath was out there for the 40th day in a row, taunting the people of Israel. You know, send me a man. If any of you comes down and defeats me, we, the Philistines, will serve you. But if I defeat him, then you will be our servants. Let's have representative warfare. And the men in Israel, as David approached the camp and as he heard Goliath speaking, the men in Israel were whispering about this man. They said, have you heard what will be done for the man who goes down and defeats this giant? The king has said that his house will have free taxes, be free from taxes in Israel, and he will give his daughter to the man in marriage. And David heard about all of this, and then he asked, what shall be done for the man who goes down and defeats this Philistine, this man who defies the armies of the living God? And when he said that, David was the first man to bring up that God was alive. Everybody else was thinking about Goliath. Everybody else was thinking about the giant, but David saw through the giant and saw God. And now here he is as an older man singing this song, and this same man who when he was young said, God lives, at the end of his life, he's able to say, God lives. God lives. God is alive. I've proved him over and over again. He, he, he called me like, like Jesus called Peter out of the boat. He called me out of the boat. And I said yes to him over and over again. And he showed me that he lived. You see, only a person who walks by faith, only a person who takes ventures of faith and obedience with the Lord will be able to demonstrate that God is alive. If our lives are set apart in such a way as to where we never obey the Lord, we never trust the Lord with our finances or with our business or with our week or our flow of life or in evangelism. If we never do any of those things, then how can we show that God is alive? But when we step out as David did, we're able to say, God lives. God is alive. So to me, these are beautiful things that David was able to say. God is my rock. Can you say it? God is my rock. To be able to announce all of these beautiful things. God is my deliverer. God is worthy of following. His word is the best way. To be able to say, God has enabled me and equipped me. And to be able to say, God lives. Wouldn't you all want to sing this song? So let's be a people who walk with the Lord so that as our lives progress, we can sing like David said. Thanks for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about Calvary Monterey and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our senior pastor, Nate Holdridge. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.